welcome to another episode of On Geopolitics, where we discuss geopolitical issues in a historical context. I'm Suzanne Rain, and I'm joined, as usual, by Ali Ansari. Today, we're going to focus on Belarus, which has been in the news a lot recently. And we realise that although we think we know what's going on, we probably need a bit of help understanding the broader context. We're joined brilliantly by Dr. Donatus Kupchunas, who is a research associate with us at the Centre for Geopolitics and runs our Baltic Research Programme, and also happens to be from um, Vilnius in Lithuania. And uh, we're going to be talking today about the situation with Belarus and the border uh, issues that are going on with Poland and obviously the Baltic states. And it's a real great pleasure to have you here with us, uh, Donatis. And I wanted to sort of start off by really seeing, you know, whether you can set the context for us and really tell us, you know, what, what is going on at the moment on uh, with Belarus and, 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 and these border and these border disputes? What is the context of these uh, of, the de- of these developments? Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So what is actually happening? Um, groups of people, mostly uh, Kurds from Iraq, but also Afghans and Syrians and others, try to go through Belarus and then through Poland or Lithuania to Western Europe. Uh, their aim is mostly Germany. Uh, now, this is a purely artificial migration crisis, entirely manufactured by Lukashenko, possibly with acquiescence from Putin. So what is happening is that Belarusian authorities are pushing these migrants to the side of Lithuania and Poland, while Lithuanians and Poles are not letting them in. So that's the crisis in a nutshell. Now, how exactly is Lukashenko doing this? Uh, Well, Belarus has drastically increased the number of flights from Iraq and other places to Minsk. And Belarusian authorities also started issuing tourist visas left and right. This journey is not cheap. It costs thousands of dollars for every individual migrant. Uh, If you have the money, you can even get a meet and greet service at the Minsk airport, which would take you directly to the border with Poland or Lithuania. Um, At the border... If the migrants are too indecisive, Belarusian guards just push them into the neighboring territory, often literally just by using force. On Lithuanian and Polish side, um, they're doing everything they can to not let these people in and to push them back. So uh, when Lithuanian border guards, let's say, catch a group of migrants who managed to get through, they detain them and then they push them back to Belarus. Uh, These people are told, do not go here. If you want to ask for asylum or for a visa, you can do that through regular channels. And uh, Lithuanian and Polish border guards are probably using some sort of intimidation tactics as well. But real journalists are not allowed into the border zone, so there is very little reliable information on how exactly they're doing that. Uh, So, these migrants are stranded at the border, no country wants them, even Germany doesn't want them. They are angry because they were looking for a better life in the West, and they have invested a lot of money and effort, and they're not getting what they paid for. And it's also getting cold, and there are children there as well, 
while Lukashenko is using all these unfortunate people as human weapons in his conflict with the EU. So far, Lukashenko did not dare or could not concentrate, say, 20 or 30,000 migrants, or even worse, to give them some weapons, because that's where it would get interesting. But at this moment, we've got some evidence already that Lukashenko is backing off and uh, starting to send the migrants back to their home um, countries. And and so, I mean, when you mentioned the, the numbers there, you were talking about 20 or 30,000. I mean, what, what sort of figures are we talking about in, 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 in total? So to take just the Lithuanian example, uh, in 2020, before everything started, Lithuania reported less than 100 illegal border crossings from Belarus, while uh, by mid-November 2021, more than 4,000 migrants got through and uh, around 8,000, I think, are reported to be pushed back to Belarus. So it's in that ballpark. There was also an attempt to concentrate a few thousands of migrants at one border crossing to help them break through, but the Polish side uh, repelled it with um, water cannons. Donatus, the, um, this didn't come out of nowhere. Um, we all been watching over the course of the last, well, you could say over the course of the last 25 years, but but definitely the last couple of years, a real escalation in, in the sort of domestic political unrest within Belarus. And, and that obviously immediately also overflows into the neighbouring countries, particularly Lithuania and Poland. So if we if we sort of step, do the first step back and say, how do we get here? What's triggered this border crisis? I presume that you're going to say this is Lukashenko's response to a series of actions that were taken by the European Union, among others, in response to Lukashenko's oppression or suppression of political dissent. But but that's my sort of very brief summary. How would you explain how we've got here, which is essentially a border standoff between neighbouring countries? Right. So after 2020 elections and after violent crackdown of protests in Belarus, Lukashenko was cornered by international isolation and by the incoming packages of sanctions. And the EU said... We do not consider you a legitimate leader anymore. While the Lithuanians sheltered and started promoting Svetlana Tikhanovskaya as a sort of a president of Belarus in exile. And what ultimately triggered this crisis was the Ryanair incident. When, as you may know, the Ryanair flight with a prominent Belarusian opposition figure on board was forcibly landed in Belarus. And what followed were more EU sanctions, such as closing the European skies for Belarusian airline flights. And uh, then Lukashenko said in response, um, you know, we, we have been stopping migrants from reaching the EU, but now you can have them all and you can choke on them. Of course, not only he hasn't been stopping migrants, but it was him who actually engineered all this migration crisis. 
and and this is where we reach this the, the discussion that's being had in you know think tanks and um in the media is is whether this can be described as essentially gray zone oppression so it's sub threshold activity which um to which there's no easy response um and and so you, you end up talking about it all the time i mean the, the, there's two questions really one is um where does everybody go from here can we see is is Lukashenko just going to keep doing stuff like this does the other other things that he could be doing um and and what response does the west have mm. um and there's loads of questions which we're going to come on to actually but um start with those uh what Lukashenko wants is to ease western sanctions and he wants to be recognized as a legitimate leader of Belarus so he thinks that turning up the heat and escalating the conflict can help in this regard. Uh, his idea at the start was probably that the feeble West would uh, start choking on migrants and that they would have no choice but talk and offer him concessions. Um, then provoking a heavy-handed response from Lithuania or Poland could serve to discredit their governments both internally and internationally, as these are the governments that do not recognize him. And also, Belarus actually earns some money from this crisis as well, um, because migrants need to pay every step of the way. They need to pay for flights, for visas, for hotels in Belarus. And uh, there is also a whole infrastructure in Belarus to cater for that. So at least in the short term, uh, this is all profitable for Belarusian authorities. But as I said, it seems that the intensity of it all is subsiding at present, at least for the winter, and we will see if Lukashenko um, gets back to this in spring next year. Now, as to what other weapons does Lukashenko have in his arsenal? Um, well, he already threatened to stop gas transit through Jamal pipeline to Western Europe, but this is unlikely as this would involve him in a conflict on two fronts, basically. Putin already gave him a rap over the knuckles immediately after he heard this, because first, the gas is Russian, and second, the pipes are Russian as well. And Russia wants to be seen as a reliable energy supplier for the West, especially given the threat of Western abandonment of fossil fuels. Um, in theory, Lukashenko could also seal the border and cut trade with Europe, uh, what would cause a major disturbance because a significant part of Chinese exports to Western Europe go through Belarus. But Cutting that artery of trade would involve Lukashenko again in a conflict with China this time, which is investing in high-tech science hub near Minsk and so on. So that's unlikely as well. In theory, in case of war between Russia and Ukraine, Lukashenko could say, if you continue to sanction me, I'm going to allow the Russians to use uh, Belarusian territory for military operations against Ukraine, or even uh, join Russia in its offensive operations. But that also does not seem realistic, at least in the short term. Uh, what options does the EU 
or the West have in dealing with this? Uh, well, as always, you've got hawks and doves here. So you can either sanction the hell out of Belarus, increase the pressure by all means available, or you could resume talking to him like everyone did in the last 25 years. Uh, both of these positions have their pros and cons, I think, but the risk of being too hawkish with Lukashenko obviously is that you know you can leave him no room for maneuver and you can push him to the side of Russia beyond uh, the point of no return. I mean, I'm intrigued by this notion, of course, that he's doing it to get some legitimacy because he's trying to force everyone to come to the negotiating table with him, I guess. But what I, I wanted to ask a bit, you know, what, what's... Um, I mean, how, do you see him as an independent actor or how much is he really in sort of Putin's, uh, you know, Putin's orbit in that sense? I mean, how much is it being directed from there? How much is he, you know, um, uh, you know what, what's driving him in that sense? I mean, is it is it purely for him wanting to stay in power for seemingly... I mean, it seems to me he's been in power for a very long time. Um, but how much is this really driven by him being essentially a client of, 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 of the Russian state? Lukashenko is not Putin's puppet by any stretch of imagination. Oh. At least it wasn't the case until now. That's Putin actually hates him, and Lukashenko hates Putin too. Now, why Putin hates Lukashenko? Actually, Yeltsin hated him as well. <laughs> as Boris Nemtsov said, nobody has ever fooled Russia as much as Lukashenko did. Since the uh, 1990s, Lukashenko has been getting massive subsidies from Russia, cheap gas and oil, free market access and whatnot. But Lukashenko was still flirting with the West. And he was promising the moon, but delivering very little for the Russians. Let's just take the idea of this union state between Russia and Belarus as an example. So... This agreement was signed in 1999, but it's not a thing even today. And uh, also, despite the pressure from Russia, Lukashenko did not recognize Russian annexation of Crimea, and neither did he recognize South Ossetia or Abkhazia. But this might actually be changing now. Um, Lukashenko is now a pariah of Europe, and it was Putin who uh, saved him from political and possibly physical destruction in uh, 2020. And while Putin hates him, what he hates even more is the precedent of a successful <laughs> overthrow of a dictator. So uh, Lukashenko's life depends on Putin now more than ever before. And as a result, just recently, uh, Lukashenko said that um, he recognized Russian possession of Crimea, both de facto and de jure. And before that, he was doing everything to avoid this trap. So we might be witnessing the beginning of the end of Lukashenko's balancing between the East and West. Uh, but on the other hand, Lukashenko has been very inventive so far, and <laughs> who knows, he might fool his sugar daddy once again. Is this... Um... Is this because, geographically, Putin wants a border state mm -hmm. and he wants, he, however much he might not, not like Lukashenko, it's still critical to him that Belarus is in his control rather than 
within the EU's controls. So, so essentially, I, I, I remember um, somebody saying, however much you might think that Russia is fixated on the Ukraine, it's, it's Belarus that, that they absolutely don't want to see fall under Western influence. Is that what's driving Putin here? Oh, absolutely. Keeping Belarus within the Russian orbit is one of the boldest Russian red lines. Um, it's in the name, after all, you know, White Russia. Uh, for Russians, it's probably their ethnically closest nation in the world. Um, cultural, religious, historical affinity, and so on. And there is no that anti-Russian element in Belarus that you have in the west of Ukraine. And this, um, there's such a contrast, and this is where we're going to ask you to pan your historical lens mm. out, mm. I think, firstly, one step back and then eventually all the way back. But there's such a contrast now between this, uh, you know, this sort of state that is just stuck under this leader who won't leave um, Belarus and then the surrounding countries of of Poland and and the three Baltic states, and in the, particularly the case of the three Baltic states, which are the success stories with with you know GDP approaching mm. the, the the EU old timers, so really clear examples of a successful transition. So, so why not Belarus? And you know what is it that makes it different? And also, what are the tensions that are now you know that have developed because of that? Um, First, perhaps a little footnote on this uh, successful transition. The transition was painful for the Baltic states, starting with population decline, a dip in life expectancy, a surge in suicide rates during the transition, and so on. And lots of capital ending up in the hands of the criminal world during the period of wild privatization. But today, uh, People want to move to Lithuania from Belarus and not vice versa. And uh, Lithuanian GDP per capita is almost double the size of Belarusian GDP per capita. And the gap is only increasing. Um, to answer why not Belarus, uh, first I think we would have to establish if the starting position of both Belarus and the Baltic states was essentially the same in 1991. And I think it's both yes and no. It was the same um, in a sense that both Belarus and the Baltic states were uh, republics of the Soviet Union. So they had the same system of government, the same system of economy and so on. But their starting position was also different because um, they had quite different... I would say, uh, historical trajectories. Um, first, uh, Belarus did not have this experience of democracy in the interwar period, which the Baltic states had, even if for a brief moment. And then second, uh, the Baltic states were less devastated than Belarus in the calamities of the 20th century. Um, the Baltic states were also spared the Great Purge in 1930s, which killed many of the Belarusian national intelligentsia. Um, and the critical point of divergence, I think, was in 1994 when the Belarusian government abandoned policy of market reforms. 
And unlike the Baltic states, it continued to rely on the former Soviet Union in its imports and exports. And also, Belarus initially chose to remain in the ruble zone and so on. I was thinking there because, you know, the Baltic states have a very, very clear and distinct identity of their own, don't they? I mean, you, you know, you have this interwar period, you have this interwar period of independence, uh, then obviously, you know, uh, the war and the aftermath. I, I'm always quite struck. I mean, Belarus itself, I mean, what what is it sort of, what are its, its historical identity has shaped from what? And, and, and I mean, how would you compare it, say, for instance, with the Ukraine? Because, I mean, I, I do, you know, for instance, when you're discussing uh, discussing the Soviet Union or, you know, uh, even the Russian Empire that precedes it, you have a sense of Ukrainian identity, um, albeit obviously subsumed for large periods. But with the Belarusians, I, 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 I mean, I'm speaking here from a complete, you know, point of ignorance, by the way, but I mean, sure certainly, what, I, mean, yeah, I certainly I am. I'm a, I am, I'm afraid. I'm going is... to get a different <laughs> no, co-com. No, it's a bit, uh, it, it is out of my comfort zone, I'm afraid. But what, you know, what is the Belarusian, you know, where, where do these roots of sort of identity come from? I mean, where, where is its, uh, um, where does it gain that from, in a sense? Here we have uh, two kinds of narratives. One is the official narrative of Lukashenko's Belarusian state. And this is very much a Second World War-centered narrative, just like they have it in Russia. So Belarus is seen as this glorious country of Soviet partisans who saved their country from the Nazis. And what happened before that is not that important. Um, and while in the Ukraine, for instance, the period of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy is considered to be good times, the dominant narrative in Belarus is still this Soviet Marxist one which focuses on the class struggle and on exploitation of Belarusian people by Polish Lithuanian landlords. And then you have the nationalist narrative, which focuses first uh, on the Duchy of Polotsk in the 10th century, and then on the period of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy. And this camp actually tends to blame Lithuania for stealing history from Belarus and for appropriating the common history of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy as its own. And actually there is some truth to that. Um, the chancery language of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy was Ruthenian, for instance. So we might say that Belarusian national or historical identity is something that is still deeply contested both internally and um, internationally. I know that there's a deep history mm. about the Lithuanian-Polish Commonwealth. Yeah. So, so when did when did Belarus become a, a sort of a historical concept or a, or a country? in its own right. Who, whose idea was an independent Belarus? It uh, wasn't until the 20th century when we have a polity with the name uh, Belarus. Uh, there was an attempt to create a nationalist Belarusian state after the Great War in 1918. It was called the, the People's Republic of Belarus, and it was essentially a German uh, puppet state that functioned under the German occupation. It was this part of the German Middle Europa scheme. And the flags that you could see in the protests in Belarus in 2020, for instance, come from that 
period as well. Uh, then there was the so-called Litbel, or the Socialist Soviet Republic of Lithuania and Belarus, that was proclaimed in 1919, and uh, that existed for a few months. But ultimately, everything was decided on the battlefield in the Soviet-Polish War of 1920, after which uh, the western part of Belarus became uh, part of Poland, while the eastern part became the Belarusian SSR and was one of the founding members of the Soviet Union. So, so it's kind of, I mean, it's... <laughs> Kind of not. It's not a surprise that this country isn't functioning well because it's not really clear that it's ever actually been a properly functioning country. Is that that might sound harsh? Do you think that's harsh, or do you think that's the that's the? Harsh? It, does, it doesn't sound like it's it, it's had even a semi-autonomous status, really, has it? Or again, am I wrong? Well, it depends on which historical polities you claim as your roots, I guess. If it's the Duchy of Polotsk a thousand years ago, then you can say, of course, Belarus is a historical state and uh, it even was a sort of a sovereign polity, maybe. Uh, you can also argue that the whole Lithuanian Grand Duchy was actually all about Belarus and not about Lithuania. And then you have the Belarusian SSR that was a separate Soviet Republic and it had its own communist party and uh, so on so if i was to ask you what distinguishes belarus from russia in terms of identity i mean what what, what is it that they have what, what's their national i mean what would their national day be in a sense belarusian identity i think is much more archaic in a sense that belarus has stronger yeah. legacies from the belarusian ssr which it sort of tries to combine with the elements of capitalism the current flag of Belarus is the flag of the Belarusian Socialist Soviet Republic, minus the hammer and sickle. And um, also, fun fact, the day of October Revolution is still a public holiday in Belarus. Um, Belarus is also much more like a one-man's band compared to Russia, I think. Uh, because today's Belarus is all about Lukashenko, really this former director of a Soviet state farm. And in that sense, uh, Belarus is much more 1984-ish than Russia is today. Uh, Belarus is also a much smaller state. It does not have that imperialist dimension to it. And there is much more room for improvisation, I think, as far as the national identity is concerned. Um, speaking of all that jazz, I remember just recently reading an interview with Lukashenko's press secretary, Natalia Aismont. She's a sort of uh, Dmitry Peskov of Belarus, and she's an actress by education and looks like one. So what she said was, let me just get the exact quote, as this stuff is too good for paraphrasing. Uh, so she said, um, I quote, Today the word dictatorship is getting a more and more positive meaning we see what is happening in the world. We see chaos and disarray. Perhaps what I will say is paradoxical and surprising, but it appears to me that everyone in the world will want dictatorships soon. Today, when we think of dictatorships, we imagine discipline and totally normal and peaceful life. End of quote. 
<laughs> I find this absolutely fascinating because there is no more playing around with words democracy and so on. They don't even say, you know, we're a special kind of democracy. <laughs> even North Korea is officially called the Democratic People's Republic. But in Belarus now, <laughs> it seems they say, you know, we are a dictatorship and so what? Dictatorships might be good for everyone. So why don't you try it yourselves? So this is the essence of Lukashenko's Zondeweg, if you will. Donatus, I want to ask about the importance of the dissidents. You spoke just now about it, it's the sort of 1984 state with extreme political repression. Um, and I know that for a long period of time, both Poland and Lithuania have felt a strong obligation to support Belarusian dissidents who have had to flee Belarus um, but are completely committed to political activism for a change of governing system within Belarus. That obviously puts that that's the that's one of the critical factors in these poor relations which leads to what what we've now got with the migrant crisis. So so how do the governments of Lithuania and Poland approach the dissident issue? Of course, it's uh, not a secret that uh, Lithuania and Poland have a bit of a soft spot for Belarus for historical and geopolitical reasons. Uh, what is today's Belarus was part of the Lithuanian Grand Duchy since the 14th century. It was also part of the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth later until the Russians came and took it away. So there is a tiny element of quasi-imperialist mentality here, perhaps, you know, from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what Morza do Morza and so on. And geopolitically, obviously, uh, Lithuania and Poland want to have a safe space or a buffer uh, between themselves and Russia. They want a pro-Lithuanian or pro-Polish government in Belarus, and they are doing everything they can to push Belarus towards the West, as they think this increases their security. Uh, there is also some genuine concern about oppression in Belarus, but at least in Lithuania, support for Belarus, just as its recent support for Taiwan, it is a very much uh, top-down initiative, and not everyone is as bellicose about Belarus as the ruling Conservative Party. So Lithuania and Poland are a safe haven for Belarusian dissidents. Um, they are funding them and so on, and Lithuanians are sporting Svetlana Tikhonovskaya as the legitimate leader of uh, Belarus. So, I mean... What sort of um, what future do you think you know Belarus has? I mean, I, I'm afraid this is is not. It doesn't sound very upbeat to me, but uh, you no, might. A, you might. the most depressing podcast anyone's ever heard. <laughs> but perhaps you can finish on an upbeat note. Let's see. Well, let me see what I can do. Uh, first, I think it's important to realize that for someone like Lukashenko, staying in power is a matter of life and death. Um, pretty much literally. Uh, Lukashenko is a murderer 
Um, and I'm not talking here about his recent heavy-handed response to protests. It is a public secret that in 1999 he got rid of his political opponents Yuri Zakharenko, Viktor Gonchar, Anatol Krasuski, and maybe some others. So if there is a successful revolution in Belarus, Lukashenko would be tried for his very serious crimes, and there is still death penalty in Belarus. So Lukashenko will cling to power to the very end. For Putin, annexation of Belarus would probably look good for 2024 elections, as his popularity always seems to follow geopolitical gains. But at present, uh, Lukashenko is a guarantee for Putin that Belarus will not escape to the West. And of course, the worst for Putin would be something like a Ukrainian scenario in Belarus. Another point is that uh, you cannot really depose a violent dictatorship through non-violent means. Uh, this simply doesn't happen in the real world. And especially when you want to depose someone who has Putin behind his back. So Belarus is really a prisoner of geopolitics. Um, Lithuanians, Poles and some others in the EU pull them westwards. Russia wants to keep them in the east. But ultimately, of course, it's, it's the Belarusian people uh, who decide. There is a progressive element in Belarus. Um, people who would like to live just like their neighbors in Lithuania or Poland. People who value democracy and all the freedoms. But there is also this more inert part of population that can do without all that and that is satisfied with what it has already. And it's very hard to say which of these two elements has the majority in the absence of free elections. So unfortunately, uh, Belarus is a very unfortunate country. Even historically, if we looked at the map of Europe, showing you know casualties in the Second World War, Belarus would be the top first country in Europe with a staggering one quarter of its population as casualties. And now it is this last dictatorship of Europe where people are still stuck with this manipulative director of the Soviet state farm from 1984. So we can only wish Belarus well and hope for better future. Donatus, thank you very much. That's um, it's been a masterful exposition of a proper problem on Europe's borders and it reminds us how important it is to really understand the depth of these issues if we're going to in any way start to think about how you might address them. Although you have, as I said, just pointed out rather depressingly <laughs> that the, the options for addressing it in the short term aren't aren't many, but um, but thank you very much for that, and um, we'll be coming back to you, Donatus, periodically for check-ins on this and other issues as we forge ahead with the podcast series. So this is the first of many. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Donatus. Okay. Thanks very much Bye. for having me.